0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, May the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Paddy Daly and David Williams. He's producing the program today. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211 or elsewhere. It's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. All right, so nice blue sky day here in the Metro region as it was yesterday for Mother's Day. So hopefully you had the opportunity, if you're lucky enough that mom is still with us and you're close by enough to celebrate with your mother and your family. We hope you enjoyed your Mother's Day. We sure did, I'm one of the lucky ones where mom's still around and of course my wife and sisters. So hopefully it was a good day for you. Now I saw some brief mention of a walrus on my social media feed and the first thing came to mind was did someone peek over my fence see me catching a few rays? But it wasn't. It was an Atlantic walrus at Middle Cove Beach. Now, Middle Cove Beach, if you've ever been in the region, when the Capelin roll, look out. It is as busy as can be down on Middle Cove Beach, of course, in the community of Logie Bay, Middle Cove, Outer Cove. But so, this Atlantic walrus pulls up, sun itself, apparently looks like a juvenile, given it's a fairly medium-sized animal, smaller tusks. And many people spent part of their day going down to take a look. And of course, it'd be quite interesting to see a walrus in the wild. And of course, officials once again asking for folks to give the animal its space, and that's understood. But I just wonder, how common is this? For the life of me, I could not recollect one other occurrence where there was a walrus on shore on the island. Someone sent along something that said it used to be really quite a a common sight in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, but hunting the Atlantic walrus in the 1700s led to extinction. The bounce back has meant that very few in the wild, and very few in Newfoundland waters. So this person, who I believe is a senior citizen, says maybe once or twice in that person's lifetime that they've seen a walrus on land, but apparently used to be common, maybe not so much today, but it was quite the sight, no doubt about it. Let's keep going. I don't know sometimes if we take for granted some of the achievements of people in the province through every arena, including curling. Back in 2014, the current iteration of Brad Gauju, Mark Nichols, Jeff Walker, Brett Gallant, they took to the 2014 Masters in the Grand Slam of Curling events and won. They bookend it now yesterday with their 13th Grand Slam, beating Ke- Kevin Cooey 8-5. Just remarkable stuff. I- I again, it's been in the news. Brad Guju's name has been in the news for so long now, all the way back to winning World Junior titles with Mark. But even if you just look at the recent past of this team, without question, you know, along with the Nicholas Adines and Kevin Cooey's and a couple of others, one of the greatest curling rinks in a generation. No doubt about it. And now it's an end of an era. With Brett Gallant, the second moving to Alberta, he's gonna actually play with Brendan Botcher next year. So just think about what they've done. They've won an Olympic bronze medal, a gold and two silver medals at the Worlds, four briars, including the most recent when they won as a team of three with Mark Nichols under COVID protocol. So good luck to Brent and uh, safe travels, or Brett, pardon me, and safe travels. And you know, with three incredible players left behind, they'll fill the gap and keep going. But it has been just remarkable to watch. And I think most people in the province who are curling fans, even if you're just a casual fan, Gush is a household name. Nichols is a household name. And I think you can throw Walker and Glant into that pod right now. But that has been quite the extraordinary run for that particular curling rink. And their 13th Grand Slam yesterday, fittingly. And the Growlers Knights bounced back yesterday after getting pummeled up and uh, down in Reading, Pennsylvania over the weekend. So that series is at one, tied at one. Games three, four, five, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at the Mary Browns Center. And another name that's becoming a household name here in this province is Abby Newhook. So this past weekend, Abby Newhook was named the 2021-22 Female Rookie of the Year for the Boston College Golden Eagles. Not just for hockey, for the university. And Boston College is a sporting university, as well as their high academic standards. But there's at least, I was trying to do a count to see, get an idea just about how extraordinary this accomplishment is. There's at least 15 varsity sports for women at Boston College. And Abby Newhook was the Rookie of the Year at her school. Congratulations, Abs. What an absolute stellar run. He's into Mondays, as you know, Right. Bravo, congratulations to the members of the Cygnus Gymnastics Athletics Team. They were up in, uh, at the Atlantic Championships this past weekend. They sent up 27 athletes in both the men's and women's divisions, the artistic gymnastics. We had 10 all-around elected champions, 75 top three finishes on the apparatus, and an all-around. So what a weekend for the members of the Cygnus Gymnastics Teams. They're off to the Nationals later on this year. Absolutely brilliant stuff for them, too. All right, what else we got? Okay, ECMAs. Again, punching above our weight, to say the very least. This past weekend in New Brunswick, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians took home 11 ECMAs including Media Person of the Year, our very own Greg Smith. Congratulations, Greg. I know he puts a monumental effort into covering the art scene, in particular music, and is recognized for his efforts. Here's a rundown quick of the winners here. Quote the Raven, Kelly McMichael, Ruben Rake, Mallory Johnson. Might be the year of Mallory Johnson. First Life Fridays, Greg Smith, Cecil Johnson, Justin Fancy. He's the fans' choice entertainer. Uh, The other, a second win for Mallory Johnson, a video of the year, and then two Lifetime Awards, Yvette Lorraine and Gordon Quinton. Bravo, Bravo. All right, how are we doing on the phone here this morning, Dave? I'm going to need some help carrying me through here today. One of the most striking ways to cover politics... Is not necessarily in the newspapers, the Broad Street, not necessarily on cable news or even on this program. Political cartoons, they are something to behold, and the people who do them well really do speak volumes with their artistic creativity and their sharp and caustic wit. The first political cartoon ever to appear in an American newspaper the new British colonies were divided, eight colonies pondering revolution with the caption, join or die it was written and penned by or drawn by Benjamin Franklin back in 1754 and maybe you want to make that move into the talkies and we're looking around for opportunities here in this province for what might just be the next thing we can grab onto and there's lots of reasons to be bullish on a variety of fronts in my personal opinion here in the province and we'll get to a couple of them including the ten million dollar investment that the province made in the most recent budget to create a formal TV and film campus at CNA Far too often when monies flow from the province to the arts community, TV, film, tax or tax credits, or what have you, it gets a bit of a knock. I'm never really sure why. We've been able to grow the industry leaps and bounds and attracting all kinds of major TV and film productions. So with the establishment of this $10 million campus, this year it's going to be in a swing space until the formal space is ready for January to come. 100 students are going to be enrolled in the first semester they're going to be working on all kinds of stuff. technical production creation post-production production management visual effects with a well-trained seasoned crew we've got well-established companies and a full crew or maybe some gaps here in the labor world full uh, complement of well-trained seasoned veterans that are able to take on productions with disney or take the shot or son of a critch or hudson and rex or frontier or doyle or up and down the line so this you know this kind of got lost in the shuffle with all the big things that were in the budget although there was very few so-called big things but this is just another place where the industry can do nothing but grow sky's the limit the value of the industry in the province last year in the neighborhood of hundred million dollars so it's nothing to sneeze at i want to put that back on the front burner okay so while so many people are really wondering what the government should do and industries they should support there's a couple of real stark contradictions that float around. This comment uh, last week from Environment Minister Stephen Gibo federally really drew the ire of many. And he was talking about the fact that he thinks in his mind that the oil companies, Canada's giants, should reinvest their whopping big profits into curbing their own greenhouse gas emissions. There's a lot on the line for the companies and the government. I don't know if you think this is enough, but... So the new refundable tax credit, uh, in the most recent federal budget, is worth up to 50 to 60% of the investment for carbon capture and 37.5% for transportation, storage, or use of the emissions. Now, if you're simply going to uh, capture the carbon and pump it back in to increase oil production, you won't qualify. But... You know, it's remarkable. Last week we talked about a story where because of the explosion in the cost of fuel and feed and fertilizer, that many smaller operations, even medium-sized farming operations in the province, are looking at a very difficult year and asking whether or not the government sees the issue, understands the issue, and would like to get involved. So many people who wrote me that say, no, if your business model doesn't stand on its own two legs, then no government money should flow your way. Not willing to look at the realities of life where your food is grown, but the exact same people saying that it's absolutely best kind and the government must fund, fuel, subsidize the oil and gas business. There's, you know, talk about the political hot potato that's become the industry. No longer is it really about policy. No longer is it really about short-term, medium-term, long-term vision that one government at any level can have. So, no, we can't support agriculture, even though there's a quest to double food production, to ease our reliance on importing 90% of what we consume. So, you don't like it, but like oil and gas subsidies. Okay. So, for those oil and gas companies, their own carbon capture and storage and transportation is probably good business for them. Then you look at this province and some of the issues that have been front and center. And the Beta Nord Project has been released from its environmental assessment, and we're awaiting Equinor and the province to figure out what next steps are. And then there's West White Rose. The government flowed through that oil and gas support fund of some $350 million, some $45 million, which created nothing out in Argentia. And now Synovus is now reporting some of their profits so they will say in relation to the federal budget and the tax credit available for investing in their own best interest and in their own company it's not good enough so the CEO of Synovus which of course is the operator at West White Rose at this point. Uh, Alex Pourbay, he's the new CEO, says, It's not good enough. It's simply not good enough to convince the major companies, especially the oil sands producers, to start building a proposed carbon capture and storage project. Let's get an understanding of just how much money we're talking about here. Synovus last year, for the entire year, profits were $220 million dollars. They just reported their best ever first quarter profit of over $1.6 billion. So it's not a matter of picking winners and losers. It's not a matter of just saying the just transition happens tonight. We must have it figured out by Friday. That's not it at all. But when we look at what's really absolutely going on and where we grow our food versus these enormously profitable companies and wondering what's the best place, the most appropriate place, the most important place for any support to flow from any level of government. So those numbers for context. Sonovas doing pretty well. Some of these smaller operations that are growing anything from root vegetables that have dairy cows or what have you, they're going to have a really tough year. A lot of that, of course, regarding what's happening in the Ukraine, which we'll get to now in a second. Looks like there's been the formalities of contracts done and signed between Vale, Tesla, and a Swedish battery manufacturer, Northvolt AB. And this is for nickel mined at Voices Bay, in Northern Labrador. We know, whether it be the comments coming from uh, Energy Secretary of the United States, Jennifer Granholm, and or this particular deal, and the understanding of the amount of precious metals, critical earth, critical mi- minerals that we have here, there's massive opportunities in the offing. At this moment in time, the amount of nickel produced in the country already goes, 5% of it goes into nickel, uh, electric vehicles, pardon me. Valet says they increase the production between 30 and 40% as it expands into that industry. So it's not all just about electric vehicles. It's also about job opportunities. It's also about expanded tax base here in the province. And those opportunities are right there in front of us. It'd be nice to know what else is going on there and the future of Same thing when we talk about what proponents might be in the wings waiting for the wind to blow and some of the amendments made to Bill 61, so we'll put that out there. And also, in the neighborhood of carbon intensity in this province, uh, these are verified numbers. Valais Nickel Refinery Long Harbor has a verified carbon footprint of 4.4 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per ton of nickel in 2020. By comparison, pellets and powder from the Copper Cliff nickel refinery in Ontario has a verified put- footprint of 7.3 tons equivalent. So we might be well positioned on a variety of those fronts. Oh, it just popped my head. I meant to check it. Is the MyGovNL interface still down today? A company that called Vivo, a third-party operation that built the system, and maybe made some. Glaring errors in the build, and it was extremely frustrating. Whether you're trying to deal with motor vehicle services or renew your MCP card or get a wood cutting permit, it was down all week last week. And someone check it for me, will you? Let me know. All right, today we expect the arrival of 175 Ukrainian refugees. We know that the province sent a four person team over to Warsaw, Poland, to identify job opportunities and accommodations and all the work being done by the Association of New Canadians. And they're actually actively recruiting volunteers to be interpreters, uh, to participate in the family match program, also the conversation circle partners to help with conversational English for the arriving Ukrainians today. Contentious on some fronts, but here's what sometimes becomes a problem. Is when we say refugee, Unfortunately, so many people hear it and think 'er ne'er-do-wells, bringing nothing to the table, no skills, no opportunity to be contributing members of society almost immediately. The association is covering a lot of the uh, cost, Mary Browns and Greg Roberts are covering a lot of the cost, the province and the country are bringing them here, but of course no income support available for them upon arrival, so they are coming. And if you want to talk about it, we can do exactly that. And also, over the weekend, a surprise visit by Prime Minister Trudeau, Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland, and Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie for political officials made their way to Kiev in Ukraine. You know, some will say he got shamed into it and it's a waste of money and climate change and why you're flying all over the place, when in fact, solidarity with our partners on the international stage and the reopening of the embassy in Kyiv, I'm a little surprised that it was such negative reaction, you know, as if it's just a photo up. I think it's more than that. We're talking about major armed conflict in Eastern Europe, so that's the case. And also, uh, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau was uh, with the party of politicians and elected officials, but... Prime Minister made his way to Kyiv over the weekend. I'm not sure of the status this morning, whether or not he's still there, but that's the case. You want to talk about it? Let's go for your information only. This is the province's COVID hub, hub updated on Friday. On the extremely good news front, no additional deaths related to or due to COVID. Hospitalization, seventeen people in the hospital, five of them receiving critical care. That's the same number as Wednesday's update. So stable at least for those two days, and we'll see what becomes of the hub update today. And again, for your your info only. Alright, we're on Twitter or VOCM Open line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at And inevitably someone said it'd be nice to get a shout out for one person, one team, one club, or another. And if I don't have the information I might not be able to do it. But if you provide it, I'll be happy to do it. Let's get it to a tune on the go. Today, 1964, squat right in the middle of the top 10. Dave Clark, five, with bits and pieces. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just very quickly, and I, obviously I should have looked it up before. It just popped into my, my mind randomly during the preamble. The MyGov NL interface seems to be up and working fine. That's great news. Now, of course, to see what the problem was and to ensure it doesn't happen again. Let's go. Line number one, top of the board. Charlie, you're on the air.
2: Good morning, Paddy. Good morning to you. A mor- uh, beautiful morning outside.
1: It really is gorgeous, and about time it warms up a little bit. I know this is standard spring weather here in the province, but still you can hope.
2: Yeah, great working uh, uh, weather. Anyway, uh, I, I like your comments on subsidies to agriculture versus uh, the fuel companies this morning.
1: Well, fair enough, but what really struck me was like I have, uh, I don't know, let's say 100 regulars on email, and the exact same batch. That were all over the province and all over the federal government to ensure that the oil and gas industry was able to survive, as if survival is a problem for some of the most profitable companies on the face of the earth. And then same people sending me emails saying, "No, if your farm can't stand on its own two legs, you're out of luck." My goodness, you know, pick one: where your food is grown, or companies that you know, Sunovus with 1.6 billion dollars in profits in the first quarter of their best year ever. So I don't know, strange.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't get that either because farming is is is, 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 is uh, an area that can be developed here and uh, any any help that can be given it's to me it's all a plus but anyway uh, uh still on that regarding fertilizer which is going up in price as you know and we could very well get shortages uh, this year and next year but uh for smaller farms and so on i have a list here that uh, could be used it's it's uh, uh everything is local here Uh, seaweed of course I don't know if people uh, realize but it's got over 60 different nutrients trace elements and that Uh, people used to grow uh, potatoes one time in kelp alone uh, where you can get capelin of course for for nitrogen that's that's good any any of the fish products Uh, crab shells uh, available from from uh, plants uh, fish plants if, if they're in your area uh, sea urchins, uh great source of calcium and other stuff there. And one that's probably neglected would be wood ash, especially the hardwoods like birch and that. That's a great source of, of, of potassium. So you, you, you can get away with... Um, a lot of these local things and cut your uh, your expenses down. Now, for large operations, of course, that's that's, that's a different category. Kind of well, that's,
1: that's the issue, isn't it? I mean, you could even go all the way to soybeans or guano, alfalfa. There's yeah. a variety that I read about since I spoke with the dairy farmer last week. But you make the key point. It's all about scale. So, it's one thing if I have a homesteading operation or a, just a small backyard plot or even, you know, a, a half an acre that I'm farming for myself. Between that and large-scale operations, you know, the reliance and the way that your soil has been conditioned for maximum yield also becomes part of the consideration. You know, moving from potash to try to come up with enough kelp and seaweed and, and manure and guana and wood chips or whatever, maybe is a problem for yield, maybe it's a problem with reconditioning soil, and it's absolutely a problem with scale.
2: Yes. And uh, one, one suggestion there, uh, our town pr- provides uh, soil uh, from the recyclables and that, that they soil for people to use on the flower beds and so on. And I was thinking that uh, it would, at very small cost, uh, they could provide kelp pits of that that would be uh, 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 useful for people uh, growing things around town, you know. But anyway... Um, the other thing I'd like to mention, uh, the florespire mine there and, and the problems they're having. Yeah. You recall in the past, I've mentioned how Stephenville, Grand Falls went under, and uh, come by chance now is pretty well a ghost of what it was. The only uh, major industry that uh, uh, Corner Brook, Corner Brook workers, actually took a pay cut to uh, to help that situation at the time, and as you know, Corner Brook is still operating.
1: Yeah, now come by chance, maybe not necessarily a ghost of, it's about half the compliment.
2: Okay, that's probably exaggeration. Well, it's, it's certainly down from what, what, what it was. Then. Oh, sure. Anyway, um, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, I, I'm pro-union, and, and, and uh, I, I think unions have got a bad deal, especially in the States. But sometimes, especially with startup industries, and sometimes older industries, when there's downturns, for startup, you need heavy capitalization. And you can see in that Florespire thing they didn't have a wharf and so on. You can see it was a little bit of a shoestring in a sense that they, they, they couldn't do all they wanted to do. Now, at that stage of operation, this is where the unions can be helpful. And I don't think the companies uh, very, uh, take the, the workers' uh, uh, advice and uh, get their cooperation as well as they could. Because if you start off with a mind down there, and I couldn't find out what the wages are, but I assume they're on par with other places in Canada. Starting up, perhaps you need to start with uh, a, a decent wage. And as, as, as the company grows and, and the markets are there, you, you, you can increase that. But, but to me, for workers... Uh, they could even invest part of their of of, of their uh, uh, salaries back into the company to help out because right now they're they're looking for other investors, and this may or may not happen, and sometimes I think we just don't look at our side of it. we always look to well the money is out there somebody's going to come in and 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 sometimes nobody comes in so i w- I would suggest that uh, people. Get together with uh, with uh, companies and and help where they can. I'm sure most people would rather stay home than go for a higher salary out in Alberta if they can get a decent wage home. You know what? What do you think of
1: that? Well, you know, not all of these things are created equal. Okay, so if they if this company is already carrying 130 million dollars in debt and 17 of that is to the provincial government, with the extent of the concerns at the mill and the mine. I'm pretty sure if I'm an employee, let's just use the word debenture, I'm not putting any of my money back into that investment, given the fact that my investment as 280 employees is going to be pittance up against $130 million in debt with absolutely no hierarchy, no place on the the unsecured creditors list, you're asking people to do something that is absolutely flying blind as opposed to a company that understands what the industry needs, what the operation needs and how much money it's going to cost 280 employees, let's just say they uh, contributed 10% of their wages, still it wouldn't cover off servicing of $130 million of debt, let alone lead to capital for the investment needed on the ground so for a company that deep down I'm not giving them any money. Uh, if I'm a large-scale investor, I probably will consider, given the fact there's a real abundance of floor spar at that particular site, and there is a market for the product. They just came in undercapitalized. Consequently, a barge tied on by Nanny's wool wasn't good enough for their actual needs at, at the Wharf site, for starters, for loading and offloading. So I don't know. I, I get where you're coming from, but it's, it's really very minuscule monies compared to the monies they need.
2: Okay, so uh, uh, the workers, one of the biggest expenses is, is wages in an operation like that. So you wouldn't uh, think that starting off with uh, a decent wage as opposed to uh, 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 comparable wages in established mines would, would, would be a good move?
1: Well, I just don't think it covers enough to even scratch the surface of what's required. You know, it would be more uh, the optics of I'm your partner versus the reality of my money's going to actually turn things around here. They have, I mean, look, if you were talking about your own hard-earned money, And as a small-timer, because if we talk about an individual of 280 employees, you are in the essence a small-time investor, at the very, very best, and that's a generous characterization of small-time. Your contribution doesn't move the needle one iota. That's the only point I'm making. Not that employees can't play an active role in keeping companies afloat, but at the 11th hour or even past the 11th hour when well, we 're talking about uh, creditor protection out of which I would not be one just look at what 's happened with Eclipse uh, resources and Sears and otherwise it, I might be putting some of my earnings and my potential benefits down the line on the line with no security of return so that 's all I 'm saying is that this if this was at the initial onset and we're yeah. developing the Valentine Lake mine for gold and they want to give me the opportunity for in essence be a par- be a, a partial shareholder with some preferred Stock and stuff. I'll contribute some of my money, but a company carrying 130 and some massive problems on site, I'm not going to move the needle. It's a tough sell if I'm the individual.
2: So I, I agree with you. At 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 the beginning, this 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 is where uh, you you should get union flexibility and workers involved. I agree totally on that. It's 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 of course probably too late now, as you said. But it seems our model uh, is always uh, it's. Uh, uh, what 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 is it called when 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 uh, an adversarial uh, 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 model where uh, people try to get the highest wages they can uh, surely we can start in some of these startup industries with a little more uh, uh, circumspection or whatever you want to call it right
1: Yeah, uh, reflection and hindsight are are beautiful tools, but this one I think is going to be, you know, when you find yourself in the type of creditor protection that they find themselves in, I don't even know if any union leader is going to suggest something like that to the rank and file, so we'll see if there's an actual major investor that understands the amount of capital required to make it a smooth-flowing, efficient mine as opposed to what we've seen, that what the operation looks like. And I mean, I, I know the mayor is hopeful. I don't, did we speak with Mayor Pittman? I can't remember. But he's bullish on it. The fellow who represents Grant Thornton, he seems to be optimistic about, you know, potential bidders who are waiting in the wings to either acquire in full or to invest for an equity stake. I don't know. But it'd be nice to see that particular mind continue because 280 jobs is a massive loss on the Buren Peninsula. Same thing oh. as we were talking last week with Mayor Steve Ryan out in St. Mary's about the potential to even... Just get that one big fish bank going again. I mean, these are the types of small steps that go a long way to securing different parts, different regions of the province. I'll give you the final word, Charlie.
2: Well, come, come by chance, uh, when the, when, they, uh, when that closed and they were looking at bids and so on, the same kind of talk was on the go. They were very optimistic about somebody coming in and taking over. And they did. And, and what ended up was not exactly what people wanted. But anyway, uh, Cornerbrook is still there. They opt out. I would suggest that... Uh, uh, Before we get into these industries, let's start looking at 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 labor and management working together. In fact, sometimes it's best for the workers to own part of the company, and I think you would agree with that.
1: Well, it comes with a certain kick in the tail to motivate you each and every day. That's one thing it does secure. But then, you know, but they also have no say, right? You know, you can be heard from in town halls and whatnot. Decisions being made on the millions of dollars spent for upgrades or just general maintenance. Even if you're the frontline worker, it's hard to always think that you're from your mouth to the boss's ear and the banker's ear, more importantly. Good to have you on, Charlie. Appreciate the time.
2: Okay, sir. Thank
1: you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking uh, with John about old age security and then the, the high cost of operations for the farmers this year, the explosion in the cost of feed, fuel, fertilizer. Don't go away.
0: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on On your VOCM, we get people talking. And welcome back. Just before we get to John, uh, with players from
1: Mount Pearl, Conception Bay Rovers, Paradise, Southern Shore, and Bell Island, the Tricom U13 AAA Thunder are Atlantic Canadian champions. Bravo. Someone just sent that along, so I'm happy to give them their due shout-out. Way to go to the Thunder. Let's go. Line number two. John, you're on the air.
3: Yeah, good morning, guys. 100% to what you just said there about them winning. That's good. Excellent. Now, uh, a lot of it all, I was going to uh, talk to you on Friday because uh, I wanted to wish the uh, mothers out there all a big Happy Mother's Day, too, for uh, all across the island and here in Labrador. And uh, But the only thing is the big thing about the old age security I was wanted to talk about. Now, I, I got on TikTok, and TikTok, I had almost fi- over 5,000 hits on that uh, about the old age security. where what I was talking to you about the other day. But, you know, if the federal government don't want to raise old age security, why don't they raise the CPP or the Canada Pension? Because the thing is, the Canada Pension, that belongs to the people. it don't belong to the government if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. The CPP, you paste that in, that's your money. It's not government money. The government is using it, yes, but it's not their money. It's, right. it's, it's our money. It's the people's money. So if they can't do the All-Age security, if they say, well, we can't raise the All-Age security, why don't they do it with CPP?
1: All-Age security, it. just one second. All-Age security up 10% this year for 75 plus. And there's an enhanced CPP program that's already in place, kicked in in January. It, uh, the scheduled as I remember, it is there will be a 14% increase to the Canada pension plan by 2025. So that's that's in place. There's already a, a, a scale that sees CPP growing over the next 10, 20 years. There's a plan already out there.
3: It's a plan there, but the plan that should be used now. It, not it, it not is now.
1: The first kick, in, the well, first no, increase. I
3: don't. I don't, I don't. I don't see it. And the thing is, let like we say, I'm not saying, I'm telling everybody out there, this CPP do not belong to the federal government. They're great, they're, yeah, the federal government is implementing implement, that they're, they're putting in there. But it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to the people. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like, I, I, if, 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 if you, uh, you were saying, we could, we should be getting by probably up to fifteen fifteen hundred to $1,800 dollars a month on just CPP alone because it belongs to the people. It do not belong to the federal government.
1: The federal government, uh, the only issue there is that CPP and the investment portfolio, if it was splintered amongst different provinces, it wouldn't be worth near the value it is today. But the premiums are increasing and the payouts are increasing. And that the first increase uh, started in both the premiums and the payouts in January.
3: Right, but is it right. is it going to be on par with uh, with the poverty line? Because poverty line's is around eighteen thousand dollars a year. know well, it's a lot of seniors and quite a few people out there that's getting twelve twelve thousand dollars a year. How could you live on twelve thousand dollars a year? I, I mean, don't think you can. A lot of
1: but poverty line poverty line is a moving target too, right? Isn't it? Because it's one thing if you are uh, a family of two and own your own home and own your own vehicle and you have a few uh, uh, RSPs kicking around and stuff, versus someone who does not have a pension from the private sector and all the rest or they've got three children or they live in vancouver or toronto versus living in say gander so that poverty line is a really tough measure i think it's all a cost of living and the index there you know whether we consumer price index and breaking it down to regions is the easiest way to assess if i have any money or if i don't have any money if i need some help or i don't need some help so i I think the poverty line is a is a tricky one to rely on because where i live in the country the poverty line is much different isn't it because if If you're trying to live in uh, North Vancouver versus living in Mount Pearl, poverty is two different things.
3: It, it is. It is two different things, and, and it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, like uh, I, I, the people surviving on really barely nothing, and some some people, that the older people, and even the younger younger, younger people, now they got to move in with their parents to help their parents out as they can, because the thing is, the parents cannot survive on what the government uh, is uh, helping them with. I mean, you, you, there you go. You got the federal government that's giving billions and billions of dollars out to the other countries, and, and why can't they look after their own? Even like even the veterans. Matter, a the 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 guys has been in the war for us. I mean, I mean, Jesus, it's time for them to start looking at us, at the people, at their own people, which is the Canadian people. You know, start looking after us. Why starve us out and and help other people?
1: Depends on who we're helping and why, I suppose. Um,
3: yeah, that's right. Discrimination. They say they don't discriminate. By God, I tell you right? They're the biggest discriminator in this world, and this is federal government. But I tell you, they unreal. How they're so?
1: Going. What do you mean by that?
3: Oh. Oh, because well, they're, they're they're discriminating against the, the the seniors. They're discriminating against the, the uh, veterans. They, you know what i If you don't, if you look at it in in a way like, well, how come they're not helping us? The, the, the us and and there's so much money going out of Canada. That's leaving Canada. They're going out to the other states and everything. Why can't they be helping us first? That's that's what I'm saying they discriminate against us to help other people, other countries. I'm sorry, not people, because people I mean. I mean, people is people—that's the way it is. But other countries.
1: Yeah, uh, and it kind of depends on what we're talking about, what country, why, what's happening. You know, there's there's a lot to that conversation about soft diplomacy and uh, investment or support uh, internationally because it's not the same. You know, for instance, if we are yeah. pulling out of Afghanistan and we've had people on the ground that helped our Canadian forces actively, we owe them something. If there are people running well, for the very... Yeah. sorry.
3: Yeah, well, yeah, but you you do own them, don't, but don't you own the people? Yeah, but no one said different, John. Huh?
1: Nobody said any different, though. I was making a point based on your question.
3: Yes, but the Canadian people is there. and They're out there helping us because they're out there fighting for us, people. That you know the Canadian people, and they come out here and they, then they, they get uh, slandered. They don't. They're out there helping us in, in the war. The people out there is helping the Canadian, uh, uh, the Canadian fighters helping them. But then when the Canadians come back, well, they're slandered because they are out there supposed to be killing people, or yeah, and and they're not because a lot of them out there helping people. But then they comes back to Canada and they're. Slandered because they're starting to the open war, and they're, they're, you know the veterans and everything. <coughs> it's unreal, unreal, what the federal government's doing for us. I'm concerned, but anyway, the, I just wanted to mention the old security is just still down in the way, way, way below poverty line type concern. But the cost of living has gone dramatically increasing every day. Yeah, that That's it has. Unreal.
1: Yeah, we're all feeling that one. That's a fact, John. I appreciate That's the terrible.
3: time. Thank you very
1: much. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, so we were talking a little agriculture and what the season looks like here in this province. You know the deal. So when we come back, Pleman Forsey, he's the PC member for Exploits. He's in the queue. And then we're going to be speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Exploits. That's Pleman Forcey. Good morning, Pleiman. You're on the air. Good morning, Petty. morning to you. Welcome to the show. Uh,
4: yes, Petty. Uh, yeah, I was listening to Charlie here earlier, Petty, and he did uh, bring up a primary course. And, and he did make some valid points, you know. Um, but uh, right now uh, uh, patty farmers are facing certain high cost of operations uh, and uh, and those high costs uh, patty eventually uh, those high costs will trickle down to every plate on every table in our province uh, some of the costs that they're facing I've been talking to a couple of farmers you know some of the costs that they're facing right now uh, in the past year actually uh, last year so the diesels they're using 83 cents a liter this year patty they're paying two point three two dollars and three cents a liter fertilizers some of the fertilizers fifty four dollars a ton last year this year thirteen thirteen hundred fifty four dollars a ton just so,
1: just quickly before you give us any more numbers Plima, what you describe might be the actual best case scenario because it's one thing if the prices are end up being covered by the end consumer but it's whether or not those farmers actually have access to a scale of market that even allows them to pass it along what the real possibility is is that some of these farms they put the fields fallow for the year and then all of a sudden we just import more and that has a bigger implication on the price tag so i mean they're in a bad spot here we're either going to pay more or they're not going to be able to carry the operation for the year
4: well, it is, Patty. I mean, say, so, you know, even to, uh, you know, we're looking at the food self-sufficiency, you know, and that's, that's being pushed more and more. Uh, farmers, farmers themselves, you know, for the high cost, you know, to, to do that, to increase food self-sufficiency, they need to clear lands uh, to 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 produce more crop. They can't afford to clear, uh, clear those lands, and they say because of the big expense. So that is a big impact on the food self-sufficiency part itself. So, like with the high cost of those those fuels, you know, we have to find a way to uh, to encumber some of this. You know, we've got to we've got to sit down and talk to those farmers. You know, meet with them and find a financial solution to them and a clear way to continue. You know, especially on uh, especially on the fuels, taxes on those fuels. You know, they certainly need to be addressed. Um, there's there's other things that probably could be done. You know, like uh, relief in the form of of grants, probably interest free free loans. Uh, reach out. We, we had to reach out to our federal uh, counterparts as well. You know, I know what the, during COVID, they gave a re- recovery benefit. Maybe, maybe something like that can be done too. You know, within conversation.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, I I don't pretend to know what the answer is. To be honest with you, Playman. but I, I do know as a person who's been in business, and know as many people in business it it does sound good to offer up an interest-free loan but some of these operations you know they're all created differently they all have a different amount of money in the bank and investments they can rely on but sometimes taking on additional debt it might be a short-term solution but it might offer some more even long-term pain because the future is very volatile and unpredictable in this world you know feed fuel and fertilizer I don't imagine that's going to settle itself in the next 12-24 months either because when you interrupt a global supply chain to the extent that this one has been man oh man recovery is not flipping switches so even if it's direct subsidies on the purchase of fertilizer whatever You know, if you tailor make it to something that is a necessary component of their operations, fair enough, because taking on more debt just make, you know, my dairy farm operation on the West Coast feel good today, feel not bad next year, but feel terrible in three years from now. So maybe direct subsidies on something that they absolutely need to create the yield that we need. Because, again, like I said off the top, I'm amazed. How some people think it's okay to subsidize major profitable organizations or companies in the oil and gas world, but shag the small business because their business model doesn't work. Man, oh man, invest in the food or invest in something that is not even tangible. We're talking about profits flowing out the door. So I'm a little bit confused as to people's personal stance on those two
4: well we we do need to find a way patty i mean say so food is food is very very important, i mean, see so most of our food do come from our local farmers and and you know we need to support them we, by local i mean say so we we need to do that as well, but uh, you know in the past, i know uh, the government has said uh, Went to new, some new initiatives. You know, uh, last year they went with uh, 2.7 million for potato farms. You know, on non-recovery loans. So we need to start, uh, start also to uh, looking at our uh, our experience and, uh, and existing farmers. You know, that can produce those crops and uh, and get us on our way to a more food self-sufficiency.
1: Yeah, and I, uh, I speak with farmers. Uh, there's a handful of them that are in communication with us all the time. And even they think that we might be on to something. If if I'm talking about Dublin food production, I'm talking about access to food and cover and, and the price point and what have you, the next big amount of money I'm spending to create new programs is in the agricultural world at the vocational schools. And if, every, if everywhere you turned you didn't see a pothole but you saw a greenhouse, then maybe there's something to that as well because you can create a job, By uh, helping train people who can run these smaller, medium-sized, large-scale operations, and we You know, check a bunch of boxes. I'm going to keep throwing that out there until someone either tells me how stupid it is or someone actually gets behind it because that has got to be part of the future. You know, the technology is different than it once was, and we can really go a long way because, you know, food security for me might mean one thing. Food security for someone living in Happy Valley means completely something different. So I just think we pepper the whole landscape with some greenhouses in addition to other things that we should and and probably should be doing anyway.
4: Yeah, you're right, Patty. I mean, say so we we do need to increase this, and 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 I also agree on uh, you know like uh, existing farmers, you know, the experienced farmers. They want to pass those farmers down to to their young young, you know, to their to their to their to their, uh, to their uh, you know, you know they're, they're young ones and that kind of stuff and they, they want to get uh, they want to pass this along and me say for uh, for people to learn to in in the farming industry, they'd have to, they would have to learn from the experienced and uh, experienced farmers, which would continue the process right now through the years and, and hopefully keep our uh, keep our farms and, and our food you know in, in good standings.
1: Family farms have been pushed aside by the big mega operations, but I don't argue that point at all play and I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know, something tailor-made, very focused, to help weather this particular storm and the skyrocketing prices. I don't know. What do you think? Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Danny. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Grand. How about you? Not too bad. Bye for an old fella, you know. Good.
5: Uh, still haven't got any power down in my stage, but. This time, Kitty you Yeah, I'm run- I'm getting run around. I'm busy. i got to stop. I'm getting that much of a runaround.
1: Give the uh, the listeners this morning just the calls notes as to what's going on.
5: Well, I rebuilt my father's fishing stage there years ago, and I got permission from the city, uh, small crafts and harbours and fisheries and oceans. All that was put in. I got the power put into my stage. The power was only 25 feet away from my stage. And they won't hook it up. Now, Light and Power told me they'll do that tomorrow with a heart and a half. But they need permission from the landowner, which is Crown Lands.
1: Yeah, and that easement, I've, again, we've had this discussion in the past. I don't know what they think they're protecting.
5: But they told me that uh, there's no way that they're going to put in new power. I said, you don't have to put in new power. I said, the power is existing. And it's only 25 feet away from my, uh, from my meter box. And the poles, they already don't have to put in no poles, don't have to do anything, only just come down and hook it up. And Crown Lands are saying that they may sell the property. I said, oh, okay, sell it to me. I might want to buy it, depending on the price, of course. And they said, no, they don't want to sell it because the person that buys, or they they want to sell it, but the person that buys it may not want a power line going across. I said, but the power line is already going across. And when I was talking to Newfoundland Power, I asked him, I said, if that pole fell down in a windstorm, will you guys come down and put it back? He said, yes. He said, because it's already existing and we have to supply power to the fishermen. And I said, okay, so why can't I get it? I'm after talking to everybody from MPs, the PPs and everything else. And I just getting in the run around and he passed me on and passed me on. And now, uh, Joanne Thompson's office wants me to get surveys done. I said, I, why should I get surveys done? I said, y- you guys supposed to be able to help me.
1: Yeah. And, and I've actually been down to have a look at what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I was going to say you could spit the distance, but it, it's just right there. It's a couple of strides, it feels like, and you could get this satisfied. Uh, I'm always at a loss when something that should be fairly fundamental comes across as so complicated by the folks you have to deal with.
5: Yeah, well... The only one that I haven't talked to now is Mr. Smallwood. I left a message, but I don't think he's going to get back to me. I can understand that. But everybody else, don't, don't get back to me. All right?
1: Well, some will say that he's still uh, governing from the grave. Uh, I appreciate the time, Danny. Uh, whenever you got an update available, and maybe some of the people that you just mentioned, I'll see if they can elaborate to me why this is such an unmanageable task, an insurmountable task.
5: Yeah, well, hopefully maybe when Mr. Uh, Prince Charles comes down, he might be able to help
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate this, Danny. Thanks a lot. You have a great one. You too, man. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, last week we were speaking with the mayor of St. Mary's, Steve Ryan, about the fact that we've got a private owner who's come in to deal with a shuttered fish plant in St. Mary's. There is currently zero fish plants operating in St. Mary's Bay? This person is willing, ready to go. The plant is willing and ready to open. The workers are waiting in the wings, but no luck with the provincial government. The mayor of Riverhead, Sheila Lee, right after this.
0: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to NL at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
1: Let's go line number four. Say so good morning to the mayor of the town of Riverhead, St. Mary's Bay, that's Sheila Lee. Mayor Lee, you're on the air.
6: Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Paddy, you summed it up pretty well in, in, tell, in telling the, the audience, your listening audience, all the reasons why we we should have that plant up and running and people working. Uh, one thing that you didn't add to it uh, was that this man is this this person is not looking for five cents from government. Right. And he's after to putting in almost half a million dollars to get this building up to a state-of-the-art place. Um, you know, it's it just incredible. Like, I wonder how politics really do work now, because, as you said... There is no processing plant anywhere in St. Mary's Bay. Uh, we have people who want to work. I'm tired, as a mayor myself, of people having to try to get on a CEP or um, a JCP. Um, you know, and then, the, then the basically there's a competition for that because you can only hire so many people and it has made people over the years so dependent on government. Um, this plant uh, not only is it up and ready and, and to go, but this plant can also do some secondary processing. If you saw the equipment in that plant, it will blow your mind away. They can do value-added product there in, with crab in addition to just processing crabs you normally would. They can do capelin. Now, I know we don't probably won't have capelin this year, but we will. Uh, they're hoping to get some other licenses but the, like, like today now for example my husband goes down to the Wharf from Riverhead every morning it's a ritual of empties all I hear is oh so and so can't go out they have to wait now maybe 8 days another small boy has gone out today but they can only catch about 3,000 uh, pounds because the, the plant just won't take any more what does that mean? It means that it's going to cost them more fuel, having to keep going back and back. It's going to cost them with time. It could mean that the crowd could get soft and the quota wouldn't be wouldn't be um, filled. Um, it's really, really frustrating. Really frustrating. I just don't understand what is going on. Um, I look for the premier and the minister to tell me where else today is the plant up and running and willing to just take go. And 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 uh, and you can't give them a license. I know there's a number of groups probably have applied for a license, but I'm not aware of any of them that have everything in place. And St. Mary's Bay, as you know all too well, we are in such a great location where we're only an hour from the city. We have uh, a beautiful, beautiful area. Now, one time, you know, the big thing was well. This rural Newfoundland is not going to survive. Well, I know that there's going to be some parts of rural Newfoundland that won't survive. Our area should be thriving. Um, we, have, we have a state of the art school down there, but we have virtually no kids. People in the cities would die. They would kill to have their kids come to this beautiful facility. We have so much space. We have lovely trails. We have all kinds of outdoor activities that people can avail of. We have indoor activities that we can expand the barn if we could get to grow our population. I'm listening now to that that plane landing in in St. John's today, the Ukrainians. What would I give to be able to say, come on, look, come on, Uh, we have a plant opening up. We're going to try to find accommodations for you. Come on and make your home here. Um, It's really, really, really discouraging. And um, I I don't know if our our Premier has ever actually visited St. Mary's Bay. I know I saw a picture of him out to the edge of Avalon and to the the mistaken point. But I would love to, to extend an invitation here on open line this morning. Premier, come in, please, and spend half a day with me. And I'll take you to this beautiful area and I'll show you all that we have to offer. Um, and hopefully, you know, you will realize that this could be such a great, a positive story to be able to grow this region. Rural Newfoundland today, with, with, like, with, like with, the com- with the computer systems now, and we're getting better. We have, I know now of six young women who are working online here, getting good wages from CRA, for example. And there could probably be another X number of people doing it if we had the young people around that would be able to, you know, want to avail of those kind of services. So we have such a bright future, but we can't have any future unless we can have work. And this man, a uh, young man and who wants to get this plant, he has such great plans, and I can see this being just such probably one of the best functioning plants in Newfoundland if he could only get that one piece of paper to say you have a crab license. So I'm, I'm appealing to him. I'm appealing to the Minister of Fisheries. I'm appealing to our Premier. I know we have a member who's working really, really hard on our behalf. Please listen to her because it is legitimate. We, we only want what we think is rightfully ours. And to imagine to not to have to put five cents in from government and to have a vibrant uh, plant down here in St. Mary's, right from Portugal coast south to North Harbour, I think there's 15 communities involved. Everybody that had people who were able to work could be coming to this plant. So so I'm hoping and praying that we'll hear something maybe later today.
1: Yeah, last year, a couple of years ago, there was some move made by the processing licensing board, uh, Chair Reg Anstey, that there was some smaller licenses granted, and of course the minister plays an actor for all in it. This plant sounds like a bigger scale operation. We also do know, and this is not to slight one individual, one company or another, there's a pretty big, powerful group of processors that I'm not going to say that they have all the say in the world, but they certainly have some influence, and they have a very coordinated, professional, well-funded and fueled, I'll call it a lobby. Now, I don't know what the issue will be. Like, for instance, when we talk about something, this may be a bit of an aside, but I think it stands in line with the conversation, is even like in the world of trip limits. So if I have that in place, and I might be so-called forced to get out in inclement weather to get the rest of my quota. And the trip limits are in place because you don't want to overwhelm the processing sector. They won't be able to take all hands, grab at the same time. Spreading the wealth is never a bad idea. Uh, just to think out loud that St. Mary's Bay, synonymous with the fishery, does not have one active processing facility when it's not that long ago they had like seven or eight. Now zero. One that's ready, there's a workforce out there, that much I know too, because I've talked to some people in the area in the recent past, and we're not even just talking... Fifty-five plus people, ages of uh, years of age, people. We're talking others. So I'm a little bit worried that this one's being pushed aside for with some outside forces. But I don't know if Mister Anstey would be willing to speak with us, and or the minister responsible specifically about this plant. But I'm due to be in your neck of the woods, like I told Steve Ryan last week. I've got to get out there in the next few weeks. When I do, I'm going to see if I can organize sneak a peek.
6: Well, listen, if you're coming out, please let me know in advance because yep. there's things you haven't seen that I want to show you
1: <laughs> i bet
6: yeah uh yeah i I you know it's it's i i hope i I don't understand, and I hope they can they can come on like for example these 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 meetings should have been held a few months ago, and everything should be ready to go just as the crab season opened, and decisions should have been made, and we should have had our license so I'm just praying. I'm praying um, that we're going to hear good news this week, and I'm also praying that our premier will say, "Mrs. Lee, I would love to come in and spend half a day with you." And I guarantee you, I'll treat him well.
1: <laughs> no <laughs> and doubt, I will you, you
6: well too. <laughs>
1: you always have, and I appreciate yes. your time this morning.
6: Okay, my darling. Thanks, Mary Lee. You have a lovely day. You too. Bye okay, bye. Bye bye.
1: Energy, driving force. That's one of those great municipal leaders. Um just very quickly before we take this break. So, you know full well there's going to be plenty of conversations surrounding things like immigration, refugees, and the fact that 175 Ukrainian refugees are landing in the city here today. And I'm going to take a guess that maybe 10 emails that are pretty much on on the same vein is we have 100,000 people in the province without a family doctor, what's it going to mean for an additional 175 people who automatically don't have a family doctor? And they are going to be given healthcare, but it's also important to uh, factor in here, they're not going to get any income support. Just based on some of the processes and protocols that were changed to fast track their ability to make their way to Canada. When we talk about recruiting and retaining anyone, healthcare professional, IT professional, and yes, or an immigrant who comes through in whatever, skilled attraction, refugee, uh, on the pathway to permanent citizenship, all the permanent residency or citizenship. Just imagine if we're talking about retention like we rightfully should. If uh, someone, individual families, are coming to the province, no income support as per this arrangement, and also zero health care, then retention, forget it. Who's going to stay? You know, we can't deny people health care if we think that we'd like to make them a permanent uh, part of the community, part of the population of the province, live and stay and hopefully thrive and contribute. But if you arrive here and you have nothing but volunteers working for the Association for New Canadians, but can't get to see a doctor, then boy, the next Ukrainian up the line that they know is familiar with their family, and the big pockets of Ukrainians in other parts of the country, that's where they're heading. And I don't think that's in our best interest, if we're spending any effort, and or money, to bring them to the province in the first place. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we go back, we're speaking with you. Welcome back to the show. Let's go back to line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air.
7: Hi, Patty. I, I got a talk to you about the hypocrisy of city hall enacting their own bylaws i've got a dispute now ongoing with my neighbor i started my first complaint in january of this year they're primarily noise debris litter complaints property standards complaints uh apparently my neighbor has been in a dispute within his family over the ownership of the house. He's been cut off of electrical utility at the pole, no meter on his house, for five years now. Guess what he's been doing for electricity? I really don't know. Running small gas-powered electric generators 24-7 for five years. The city inspector told me that it's not loud enough. I put a a DB-level app on my phone It's 65 to 70 dBs outside my house, 24-7 for five years. City won't do nothing. The city inspector told me that I would have to go to court to prove that a portable electrical generator is a tool. And in the noise bylaw for St. John's, noise bylaw, I think it's, uh, here it is, 1405. Uh, it says, the, uh, subsection 6, the operation or use of any tool for domestic purposes other than snow removal between the hours of 11 p.m. and 7 p.m. daily. You're not supposed to run anything. It says any tool. And the city inspector told me I would have to go to court to prove that a gas electric power generator is a tool. If you look at The difference between St. John's noise bylaw and Mount Pearls, it's night and day. Mount Pearls has a peace and tranquility section. Uh, The police can't do nothing. They don't enforce bylaws. They can only go knock on his door and and ask him. They've already done it a couple of times. He said no. They just walk away. Do you have any idea how much pollutants running... Uh, a gas-powered generator running 24 hours produces?
1: Uh, no, but I would imagine it's pretty extraordinary over the course of five years.
7: Yes, sir. So- One hour's uh, run is equivalent to driving 241 kilometers. A 3.5-horsepower motor mm-hmm. putting out a, a 1,100 watts puts out the equivalent of pollutants as driving 150 miles, which is 241 kilometers. City hasn't done a thing.
1: Where did you? How did you come up with those numbers? I'm just curious.
7: I, I, I Google it, sir. I, I, oh I no! Fair the enough. Exhaust, I'm just curious. Uh, exhaust data sheets, and the first little factoid that come up when you Google it was that they're saying that uh, that 3.5 uh, operating for an hour is equivalent to driving 150 miles. They they run at a much higher uh, RPM. They they don't have the uh, pollution controls that you know a car does. Right so and the city the city won't do nothing. The city told me it's not loud enough. There's no minimum noise dB level in the city bylaws.
1: What's a generator classified as? Is it a life-saving you, you tool you or you is a, it
7: If you build a house, you can't build a house with a chainsaw that's not hooked up to a gas-powered generator. My house wasn't hooked up to the electricity when we uh, the poles when we built the house. They had to use generators. It's a tool. It provides electricity. A tool provides like a service. A, 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 a use. The use of a powered electric generator is to generate electricity. At the, the utility. At the utility bylaw states that. Um, I got it written down. Utility uh, bylaw. Residential property standards bylaw. 1140 utilities. 29.1. No owner or occupant of a dwelling shall disconnect, shut off, remove, or otherwise disconnect or permit the disconnection of any utility servicing a dwelling unless, A, dwelling is vacant. They've been living in it for 10 years, five years without electricity. And, B, such action is necessary to safely make repairs and then only during the, resonant, the uh, reasonable minimum time required to safely make such repairs. They should have shut him down immediately. I've made all kinds of complaints, and they haven't done a thing. Not a thing. How you gonna so vote? I've got no other choice now but to get, seek legal representation to sue the city, to sue my neighbor. He's after threatening me, threatening my family, threatening to burn my house down, all because of a noise and property complaint. Ever since I started making the, the complaints in January, he's been threatening, terrorizing my family.
1: And so you've called the RNC?
7: I've filled out a police statement. He is a hardened career criminal, and that's why I have not pressed charges. Okay? He is. He is a lifetime career criminal with a record the length of his arm. And the city won't do nothing. Police can't do nothing. Police have patrolled here from time to time. Uh, You know, uh, like I said, they can't even ask him to shut down the noise. And it's outrageous. I'm at the end of my rope, sir. I don't know what to do. That's why I'm, you know, I said I'm calling. I've been in contact with all the city uh, uh, councilors, my ward councilor, sending off emails every day, complaining. I complain every day to the the the, the city, just to fill out the complaint, just to keep it going. Phone Phone the police from time to time, just to log the complaint. I don't know what else to do. I'm at my end's rope, sir. My okay. wife is missing time at work. She's taking anxiety and panic attacks over it, and I'm about to lose my mind.
1: Okay, just hold on one second. Um, send me an email just with the ward counselor's name, because I'm sure if I contact them, they're going to know exactly who you are.
7: Carol Ridgely.
1: Okay, no problem. But just send me an email just with your ward councillor's name, uh, and I'll just see if someone can explain to me any further. Just give them the information you have provided they, they,
7: to they've me. Been, they've sleepers, been, sleepers. Te- they've, I'm sorry for uh, butting in, but they, they've been telling me with, through the emails that they've been having meetings, and nobody has said squat to me. Okay, for the last weeks, I've been waiting the last several Mondays to hear something about some meeting on the go. This is not, it shouldn't be allowed, it wouldn't be allowed in Churchill Park, it wouldn't be allowed in any of the denser areas around St. John's, it wouldn't be allowed in any of the suburban areas. Uh, I'm the only one complaining, because I'm at the end of our street, no sidewalks, barely wide enough for two cars to go by, I'm the only one complaining about it.
1: Send me an email with the ward councillor's name, but I will at least do that much of a chase, and I understand your frustration, but I appreciate your time this morning.
7: Uh, thank you very much. I wouldn't wish this on any of your listeners. Now sounds terrible. Okay, thank you. You're
1: welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Ugh. Let's go. Line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you? Not too bad. Thank you. How are you?
8: Not too bad. Paddy, I'm, I'm sick and tired of complaining about the same thing all the time, so I'm not going to complain this morning uh, about the paratransit system because I'm beyond the stage of complaining. Uh, if you remember when we spoke last week, uh, about the issues of not picking up people and missing people. Yep. The next the next morning I got into work and there was two uh, cabs that had been contracted by the power transit system uh, waiting to pick up somebody. When I inquired, I said, man, something is not right here. And they were sent 12 hours early at 9 o'clock in the morning. They should have been there at 9 o'clock at night. So it, it's not the drivers. It's not the people operating the equipment. It's obviously systemic, and it comes right down to management and and the dispatchers and and everything else. And I've been trying now for the last uh, week to try and get a meeting with these people to see if we can sit down and find out what in the name of heck is going on. Uh, As I mentioned the last time when we spoke, we're trying to get our programs up and running here. We've got a very busy schedule. But the problem is, and it's it's an understandable problem from the perspective of our members, is that yeah, we want to come, we want to participate, but we don't want to sit outside your door uh, until three o'clock in the morning or three thirty in the morning as the last time this happened, uh, waiting to get picked up. You know, this is not rocket science. In the name of goodness. Uh you know, I, I left a message, uh, an email for Ron Ellsworth, who I think and thought was the uh, uh, contact from council, and they didn't get back to me. It, it's useless to call the mayor because he simply won't get back to you either. So I'm pleading on the air this morning, whoever is responsible for the private transit system, please call me, please contact me so we can sit down and see if we can see what's wrong with the system and see what, what we can do to fix it.
1: Sometimes, like, I mean, we've got a shortage of... Uh transportation professionals on the ground, whether it be taxi drivers and or I think through the paratransit system, do you think it's a, as much as it might be trouble at the top, do you think that we actually have the human resources to staff up what would be an expanded service?
8: No, I don't think the problem is the actual people okay. that's driving the bus. I think the problem is systemic. I think, you know, you get such simple examples is that a couple of people from the same street coming on two different vehicles and things people being missed and drive. this is not the drivers. You know, it's it's a dispatcher. You 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 go over to use an example, you go over to Jiffy Cabs and sit down and watch and listen to that professional guy over there. Man, oh man, oh man, you know, he really, really knows what he's doing. Jiffy Cabs doesn't forget to pick people up. The other cab drivers don't. You know, get a bit of training if that's what's necessary. And it's no, it's not it's not the people driving the vehicles. And that's why I spoke to the two drivers of these two cabs no that's what we were told Uh, so they can only follow direction but again can we sit down and talk about this and if if it is that's a problem then we can address it but when when people won't even speak to you and won't sit down and have a meeting that's the most frustrating thing in the world you know i can understand where that previous caller was coming from for goodness sake guys you know sit down with with people from council and talk, discuss the issues and say, there's nothing we can do or, or, or what. And I don't think there's nothing they can do. There is something they can do. And and people are, are losing out here on programs that we want to offer. I can't get them to come back and forth because of this problem.
1: Well, no. I mean, if I'm fearful of not getting a ride home at night and I have very few options available in this world, I'm not going out. And that's a real unfair circumstance to find yourself in. And even on the noise one, the – you know. Every now and then I can't wrap my mind around one concern or complaint or another because I've been in a circumstance where in my neighborhood and me, you get a visit to say, time to turn off the music. Okay. And that's not 24-7, 365 for five years uh, straight with the noise that we – obviously anyone who's ever seen or heard a generator going knows what that sounds like. So I don't know how that's been ignored for as long as it has. And I don't know what the classification of a generator is. I I really don't know. But it's a funny thing to have to get – Legal representation to find out the definition of a commonly used appliance, tool, whatever, uh, that is a generator before you can get some peace and quiet where you live? Man, I don't get it, but I'm gonna follow that one up.
8: Yeah, it's so amazing that things that you think are so simple. You know, the last time council visited me was the last time we had a watering van and this guy pulled up in his blue vehicle and he said, You where does a watering van van? I said, Oh yes, I'm sure of it. But why are you watering it lawn? And I said, Well yeah, you're going to have to write me a ticket. And he went through the whole program. I said, man, look, I'm at my own well here. I don't have water. And uh, so that was the last time they visited me. But in, in this gentleman's case, you know, it's shocking. that. And, I, I you know, I sympathize with him. <laughs> Again, to get off topic, but this is crazy to have a generator running for five years in a residential neighborhood in St. John's. I Oh, man, I, I sympathize with him. But anyway, getting back to my issue... If somebody from City Hall could give me a call or from whoever's looking after Power Transit, so we can sit down and please address the issues, it would make my day, my week, my year. Please.
1: Let me know if you have any luck, Tom. Thank you. You're welcome. Take good care. So, Thank of course, you. Tom Badcock from The Hub. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the walrus. Not go goo the one in Middle Cove. Don't go away.
0: Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon.
1: Welcome back. Let's try line number three. Good morning, Wayne. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How you doing? Not too bad, sir. Yeah, I'm
9: calling in regarding the walrus, sir, yesterday. I mean, I want to first say I'm not a scientist.
1: <laughs> okay. But-
9: I've been, I'm an expedition guide, and I've been guiding for, for many years. You know, I go back and forth from the Arctic to the Antarctic, and I'm actually leaving again now tomorrow for the first time since the pandemic on the ships to, to Norway, and we're, we'll see an abundance of walrus, as we always do. And what I've seen down there yesterday was pretty sad to see, actually, with that, with that memo. It, uh, I, you know, I, to the point where I even had to go up and speak to the DFO officer, like, I mean, you, there's a minimum distance you got to keep to the mammals. You got to respect them, and there was no respect on there yesterday. It was pretty disgusting, actually.
1: Describe what you saw.
9: Uh, too close, way too close. You got to be at least a hundred feet. Uh, the whole, at one point, the the walrus was almost encircled by people. Kids were trying to run up to it. Parents were letting their kids go up to it. Like it was. It was pretty bad. That, that poor animal was was that poor mammal was pretty stressed. And when it started to move, everyone moved with it, like driving it out to the ocean. You know, and, and the the DFL officer. I mean, there was two of them there. There, w- there definitely wasn't enough uh, enforcement officers to, to keep the crowd back. And one of them was good. And when he seen the crowd start to you know completely encircle the animal. The, uh, you know, he started at least moving them back because you should never close in the ocean from the mammal. I mean, if that, once that animal goes, I mean, I heard some people talking, oh, well, they move really slow. Walrus can go pretty darn fast when they want to. And there was kids in between the walrus and the ocean. It was just a really sad scene to see. And uh, they, the crowd drove that mammal off the beach, without a doubt.
1: Um- regarding how quick a walrus can move. Sometimes, you know, the starting point of the conversation should always be, you know, what's best for that animal, which is obviously way too far south. We haven't seen a walrus here for as long as I can remember anyway. But in short spurts, it can move as fast as a human. So, you know, even if you just have to start the conversation with, okay, let's make sure we're safe, that might give you the impetus to say, far enough back so that you are doing the bus best, best by the animal as well. So I guess if we take both angles, depending on where your sensitivities lie, yours would lie with the walrus. Me, if I had to be down with my kids, would have been about the safety of my child. So that would have meant I'm 500 feet away, just snapping some photos, having a look. That's, you know, anyway, different strokes, yeah. I suppose.
9: Yeah, no, totally, totally agree. And when that animal started moving, some parents were there, which looked like two- or three-year-old, getting down to take pictures, and that animal was going towards them. It was, like, just insane to see what was happening down there. And, again, that crowd drove that animal off the beach, which is is sad because, to me, he wasn't a very healthy walrus to begin with. He looked very, very thin and you know he, he is a long way out of out of his zone so he obviously exerted a lot of energy and, and you know he was resting and you know the the crowd forced that mammal off the beach without no doubt in my mind yeah. well and you know if, if we ever did something like that as a we, like we'd be fined up you no know, it you just can't do that to um, any any animal you respect it give it the distance fine to go down, take your pictures, let the kids see it, but there was just no no respect with distance to that uh, marine uh, mammal at all. And even the DFO, again, you know, in speaking to him, he said, like, we don't know. We, we Googled what we could. We don't know the distance. You know, and the distance is 100 feet, at least 100 feet. But again, you know, it's not crap around DFO, but I think it just should have been a lot better managed because that crowd was just too big completely in circle, that beautiful uh, mammal that was trying to get its rest and they drove it off the beach.
1: Sometimes excitement takes over and some of the decision making that you might have made differently gets all overwhelmed because of how excited the kids might be or how many people are around. Then the next thing you know is when mob mentality kind of strikes in too, well if they can stand there so can I, when in fact that's, you know, like my mother used to say, if, if uh, Wayne jumped in the harbour would you jump behind him, you know, th- that kind of stuff just plays a role and human nature sometimes gets very easily derailed or distracted and do things you might not necessarily do do in normal circumstance so
9: no, anyway no, it's no.
1: unfortunate that you saw it the way you saw it
9: yeah but that's it you know everyone was excited but you know just uh, again for for dfo or for policy i mean if that happens again i think they need a bit better management because it is uh protected mammal and i think that a lot better care should have been taken for that mammal instead of the people seeing seeing it you know
1: well it's like the tourism conversation that walrus didn't have a good experience he's not coming back no, for sure. <laughs> Sorry. All right. uh, Wayne, I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you very right, take much. Take care. You have a good day. Okay, bye-bye. And also, someone sends along an email, said they were walking along the water's edge behind a couple of people uh, that were walking their dog. Large wave came up and just about swept all hands into the ocean. I mean, it's a, it's a merciless North Atlantic. So whether it be the way behave around some of these animals, whether it be on the water or on the beach, and or knowing just how quickly the waves might be lopping in at one point but then one big one comes in and you were just barely getting your feet wet next thing you know you're getting your air sweat let's take a break when we come back paul toomey's there he's the executive director of the eating disorder foundation of newfoundland and labrador and then we're speaking with you don't go away welcome back to the show let us go line number five say good morning to the executive director at the eating disorder foundation NL. that's paul toomey good morning paul you're on the air
10: morning patty lovely day out
1: there it's a lovely day paul if possible you can take us off speaker or maybe a bit more direct connection would help the listener
10: Okay, I'm going to try. Now it's on my cell and it's connected to my hearing aids. Believe it or not, so.
1: Okay, let's Let go.
10: See if I can do this.
1: And while Paul tries to get organized there, I don't know exactly why he's calling, but I do know last week we were talking about some uh, stats compiled by the Canadian Institute for Health Information regarding the mental health of children and youth in Canada during the pandemic. The issue is really quite stark, and there was a significant uh, number of mentions of eating disorders. And the proportionality for people in this province versus other parts of Canada, whether it be presenting themselves at the hospital and or hospitalizations, their numbers are extremely concerning. Now people will talk about the impact on people's mental health throughout the last two and a half, three years, and it's obviously very real. Some people try to put forward statistics that are just made up in an effort to drive their own political narrative, but some of these uh, pieces of data that you get from an organization like the CIHI, you know, that's a good place to actually get some info that can be verified. But uh, Paul, are you back? Not particularly. So what should we do here, David? You want to put Paul on hold and see if we can get a better connection so we can have a a conversation that the listeners can actually hear? Yeah, what's on one? You want to pop that other one through, Dave? So these things are very, very concerning because we've been long talking about access to care. You know, and when we talk about health care, we should be including uh, mental health in the exact same conversation because we should not be making that distinction. So whether it be access to long-term mental health care and or what happens and what's the reality for the different age demographics, because it used to be that people heard eating disorder and it was all of a sudden that's teenage girls. When we know it's not just teenage girls, this runs the full gamut. You can have people that are well up into their 50s, 60s, and 70s have an eating disorder. And so talking about the complexity of it and who it impacts and what we're doing about it should be an obvious part of the conversation. Now, even if you just look at the Kids Help Phone, for instance, they expanded their service to include text messages. And because of that, and simply what's uh, affecting youth and children across the country, the number of calls and texts of that organization doubled. In 2021 when compared to 2019 so these issues are very very real and the I, I don't know what maybe Paul will help us understand a little bit clearer as to why there was such a difference in the numbers of children and youth in this province per presenting themselves at hospital and hospitalizations it'd be nice to have a better and firmer grip as to what's going on is that Paul back on four um okay what Okay, let's go to line number four and rejoin Paul Toomey from the Eating Disorder Foundation. Paul, you're back on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing great. So I appreciate you rejoining us here on the program. I've been trying to fill the gap by talking about some of the information that I read from the Canadian Institute for Health Information and specifically what it means for folks uh, who are been diagnosed with uh, a needing disorder what did you eat, or is that even what you're calling about i guess we should start with that
10: <laughs> well yeah it is actually i heard your preamble on, on friday morning and uh unfortunately uh i couldn't wait long enough i was on my way to a funeral out in presentia so uh i said i'd call back this morning but david reached out to me and that is indeed what i'm calling about but i'll probably add a couple of other things as well um Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head. I could hear pretty much everything that that you just said. And the CIHI information is startling, it's alarming, and it's true. Uh, What we've seen in the last... Two years during COVID has been unprecedented growth in numbers, numbers of people presenting to the adolescent medicine team at the Janeway, unprecedented numbers in the adult world who are presenting to our HOPE program. And in many cases, we've uh, we've got full houses at our inpatient program, the HOPE program, and the waiting lists at the Janeway. Are startling. Uh, they're they're terribly scary. There's people waiting, upwards of a year, to see some of the specialists, the dietitians, and the psychologists in the youth program. So, uh, you're right. You said uh, you can believe numbers from the CIHI, and in this case, you certainly can. Particularly, draw uh, notice to the fact that. The national average on the increase in hospitalizations is 20%, but here in Newfoundland, it's 30. And I can confirm that those are are the, the terrible numbers that we are seeing.
1: Yeah, and I hate to, you know, don't want to go too far with any descriptor, but when people picture an emaciated teenager, you could be different body shapes, different body yeah. weights, and still be experiencing uh, an eating disorder. But I did mention teenage girls. Now, inside this report, and I wish I had it in front of me because I read it last week, and I, anyway, I'll see if I can click it up while we're speaking, is there was a specific mention, uh, females uh, 10 to 17. Yep. They have an extraordinary number in that age demographic that are presenting, whether it be simply presenting to the hospital and or being hospitalized, because an eating disorder is not only uh, complicated or complex, it's also potentially life-threatening.
10: Yes, you're ab- you're absolutely right. The uh, of all the mental illnesses, the mortality rate on an eating disorder is probably among the highest. We've heard numbers up to up to twenty percent, and and I guess Patty, some of the reasons uh, like the isolation of covid and the fact that you couldn't socialize in your normal ways and and that I'm not saying that's any more important for young females but it certainly does seem to impact them to a greater extent than any other age group and it manifests itself in the development of an eating disorder and as you said it's it's a truly serious mental illness that takes hold of a person.
1: So it's not only the possibility for counseling and therapy and support groups and what have you. There was also specific mention of the numbers of people that have been prescribed psychotropic drugs, which is, of course, it can be part of the regime to help people navigate their eating disorder, maybe overcome their eating disorder. But what's your level of concern at the foundation with those mentions of psychotropic medications?
10: I've done a little bit of reading on that, and I know there's some very prominent people in the in the field of eating disorders who are doing a lot of research in that area. but uh, and they say there's a possibility it could be helpful. But I haven't heard anything definitive that says that it is yet, so i'm 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 nervous to speak to any great extent in that area. I know when I saw the first report, oh, let's say about a year ago, it was sort of, oh, really? And uh, I haven't read much since that uh, that sort of allayed a lot of my fears. But it's certainly something that, uh, you know, people who have a lot of experience in the area of eating disorders, who've developed a lot of the programs that we use for families, are involved in this research. And they seem to be positive about it. So we'll see.
1: Well, of course, it's not a specific eating disorder treatment. It's, be, it's for Anxiety and mood disorders Which lead to potential for eating disorders Okay, so now we have the information And as troubling as it might be Now what?
10: Now what? Um, Continue to encourage people to to Get an early diagnosis From our point of view, we have to continue to lobby the, uh, uh, the health authorities in this province to make sure they've got adequate staff in place. And I know there are staffing issues and there are challenges, but uh, this is an illness that uh, as, as my boss, the chair of our board has said a number of times, is going to reach an epidemic proportion. And uh, it's uh, I, I guess the term that came to my mind the other day is that we now have a, an epidemic within a pandemic. And uh, it's, it's a scary thought because our Healthcare system uh, it requires a lot more expertise in the area of eating disorders and I don't think we're quite there yet with having enough skilled people to be able to to take on an eating disorder in fact many of the, the professionals the, the psychologists and that are they're nervous about an eating disorder and because as you said earlier it's a very complex illness but uh, I'd certainly advise people who think they're they're dealing with an eating disorder or they have signs of it to go to their family doctor, contact us, contact us, and we'll certainly try to put you in the right place. We play the role of navigator, and we play the role of support for families. So uh, feel free to reach out to us. I, I guarantee you we'll, we'll find a way to get, get you into the system.
1: Paul, do you ever avail of folks with their own lived-life experience? They're not a formalized counselor, but they've been through uh, an eating disorder themselves, and I suppose, like many other addictions that you may never be fully recovered it's an ongoing process how helpful would it be for folks who have lived experience whether it be as a parent of uh, someone with an eating disorder or someone who had them one themselves
11: Um,
10: Yes, Patty, and we do avail of people with lived experience. Uh, uh, Two of my staff, which represents half, uh, are parents who've had lived experience, and it adds so much value to the work that they provide and the support they provide to people. We have a Siblings of Hope group for siblings of people dealing with an eating disorder, and Our siblings are just just marvelous. They they understand the eating disorder from the point of view of being a brother or a sister, and they impart knowledge to others. And uh, so, yes, I'm a firm believer that uh, having people with lived experience involved with our programs is very, very important.
1: I'm almost loath to ask this question because in some part of my mind it insinuates that people should have recognized the warning signs and done something before it became such a complicated, massive, life-altering issue and or worse. So should we be passing along warning signs or things to keep an eye out for, for the parents of young teenagers and throughout the different aging demographics? Because it's not just about the movie show. It's not eating and purging. It's more than that. So what should I be thinking about if that's a concern that's floating around in my mind with someone I love or someone belongs to me or a friend of mine?
8: Well... Uh,
10: I guess one of the big ones if you you see your loved one and this is if they're living at home that presents other challenges as well Uh, if they're living at home and you see them withdrawing from meal times they're a lot less talkative they're spending time on their own in their rooms and that kind of thing, that in itself could be an, an early warning sign and there are so many so many different warning signs social media, access to social media and that's something that parents need to probably be a little bit more involved in, especially with the younger group as you said earlier like it's 10 to 17 is the area we're concerned about so maybe some more controls on what people are seeing on social media mightn't be a bad idea but again there are health professionals out there starting with your family doctor who can do referrals so if you have any indication uh, Go to our website. There's a good list there of the signs that people should look for. So edfnl.ca, and you'll see all sorts of things about the programs and services we offer, but also the warning signs that you should be looking looking for in in your your, your loved one.
1: I appreciate the time this morning, Paul. You're always welcome.
10: Pat, Patty, can I can I make two sure points you can? Yep. On the, totally related. This is a busy week for the foundation. Uh, we've got two of our major fundraisers. Uh, We're starting our driving bingo again on Wednesday evening. Uh, Start time 7.15. Gates open at 6 o'clock at the Jack Byrne Regional Sports and Entertainment Center. It's a busy place this week, too. And uh, next Sunday, we've moved our walk from September. So our Hope Always Walk is uh, this Sunday coming, September, uh, May the 15th at 11 o'clock at Monday Pond. So we'd ask everybody who has the time or the inclination to either reach out, come walk with us, or uh, send us a pledge uh, because uh, to continue to do the work that we do to support families and individuals, uh, fundraising is a very important way that keeps us in business.
1: As it always is. I really appreciate the time this morning. Thank you, Paul.
10: Thanks, Patty. I always appreciate your time and your insight in, into this very serious issue.
1: Thanks, Paul. Talk again soon. Take care. Bye. All right, You're welcome. Bye-bye. And take care of yourself. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we're speaking with you about whatever's on normally. mind. Don't go away.
0: Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome
1: back to the show. Let's try line number one. Good morning, Miss Miller. You're on the
0: air.
11: Good morning.
1: How are you? Doing okay. How about you?
11: Oh, not too bad.
1: Okay. I think I've talked about this particular program that you've got going in your classroom on the show in the past. You know, whether there be teachers in the province that were trying to encourage folks to send in postcards so they could beautify the walls and also talk about where the postcards came from. And, you know, just some exercises where the, you know, bit outside the curriculum that all the students can get excited about. And you've got a pop can tab program on the go. What's happening?
11: Uh, not much is happening right now. We're sort of at a stalemate. We've reached uh, a total of about 700,000 pop tabs, actually. <laughs> um, so I was just talking to my class for discussing what we're going to, what our next steps are, and I said, I should call in and talk to Patty and see if we can get this final push to put us over the top.
1: <laughs> Let's do it. So right off the bat, why was this something that you wanted to take on for class?
11: Well, back in the fall, when we started our uh, unit on uh a lot of the outcomes in grade five are up to one million. And one day in class, we were talking about a million and what one million of something actually looked like. And then the kids said, well, miss, how can we see what one million of something is? So that's sort of how the project got uh, started.
1: It's a cool idea. So how many did you say you have on hand right now?
11: Seven hundred thousand.
1: Okay, so how big a space the seven hundred thousand pop can tabs occupy?
11: Um, about, I think we have like twenty garbage bags out there in the
1: <laughs> <laughs> And What are you eventually going to do with them?
11: The plan is to uh, make a trip. We our school is about three hours from uh, St John's. We we're, were our school is situated here in Port Rexton so we're about a three-hour drive. So the final plan and final destination for the pop tabs is actually going to be Ronald McDonald House in St. John's.
1: Cool. So how have people been sending? Just simply get a little package, zip it off to the school, you add it to the pile?
11: Yeah, uh, all the parents uh, of our school have been sending them in. We've had some sent from uh, different groups across the province uh, have come through the mail. I actually had um, a big shipment from one of the churches in Bonavista. They gave us what they had been collecting for a few years. And most recently, last week, a family friend of mine sent home a huge shopping bag from Alberta. One of our friends brought it home in their suitcase, actually. So we have about 10,000 that came from Alberta. So everybody's reaching out and uh, chipping in to help us out. <laughs> I'd
1: love to hear it. Okay, so you want to give us the details about uh, uh, the classroom, what grade you're teaching, the school, and the community?
11: Yeah, so I teach at Bishop White School in Port Rexton, um, and we're about a kilometer's walk from the Skirwin Trail that a lot of people uh, would be familiar with. And uh, I teach in a multi-grade classroom. We have grade fours and fives together, and there's 16 of us all together in the class.
1: I know that's not about pop can tabs, but remember when this conversation began there a few years ago, because in the past, there was all kinds of mixed classrooms. I mean, you'd have everyone from kindergarten to grade 10 or grade 9 or whatever in the same room, but there was a lot of concern with how is this going to work? We talk about class size and class composition and all the different supports you might need as a reading or a math assistant or someone on the spectrum or whatever the case may be. How is it working for you with grades of fours and fives in the same room?
11: Uh, I have to say I have a good bunch. I have 8 grade 4s and 8 grade uh, 5s, and they're pretty good. I mean, every classroom is a a dynamic uh, in itself, Um, but I do have support. And for math, actually, we're lucky enough this year that we had enough teaching units that we were able to split the math classes. So I really only teach eight students math, which is fantastic. Um, I get to sit and we can do a lot of hands on stuff and we do small group work and it works really well. But uh, no doubt teaching is a challenging uh,
9: profession for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely it is and an important profession at that. So, Miss Miller, let's see if we can't uh, drive people to keep their own pop can tabs and uh, put them together in a collection, put them in a bag or a package and ship them off to your school in Port Rexon so you can hit the million.
11: Um, you can give the school a call. I have lots of people who I know all around the province, and I'm sure I'd be able to make connections uh, if need be. But you can certainly um, uh, send us a, a, an email or give us a phone call here at the school, and I'll gladly get in touch and uh, see if we can't. Get to the one million number that we're looking for.
1: Yeah, let me know how it goes. And so, folks, give some consideration to what you do with your pack, pop- can, tab. I keep taking my time saying that. Bit of a tongue twister. Uh, good luck, Miss Miller. Let us know how it goes.
11: Thank you so much. You're Have welcome. A good day. You too.
1: Bye bye. Yeah, any of these little exercises. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Sometimes, even if it's about just engaging the student, because it's one thing to go through the three hours, day in and day out, but just little additional exercises that might not be in the textbooks, not part of the curriculum that you're told that you're, you're obliged to deliver during the school year, but something that could be just a bit of fun, that can also be directly related to what you're learning in your mathematics curriculum. A little bit more engagement leads to a little bit more interest, maybe a little bit more dedicated child. And next thing you know, the math struggle, math isn't the course they dread anymore, because it might even just that one fun little exercise, which takes some of the potential sting out of mathematics. Because, you know, for, I would suggest, a lot of children, it's fairly imposing, Math, for a lot of folks, has been a tricky piece of business. Now, some people, they just come by naturally. Nothing to it. man. Math is easy. But for a lot, possibly not. So these types of exercises, and then you take it a step further with that lady. I can't remember what community they were in at this moment in time. But even just the postcard challenge. It's not just that the walls all of a sudden look pretty, is that you can learn about just so easily, so you see the postcard and it's from one country or another, one state, one province or another, and learn one or two little easy tidbits about that place, even the capital cities. Some of those things make geography, for instance, just a little bit more interesting, a bit more tangible. Somebody took the time to send you the postcard or the pop can tab. Next thing you know, you got a kid who's a little bit more interested in the subject matter at hand because it was a bit of fun on top of educational purposes coming out of a textbook. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Sorry, just reading a social media threat, boy. Let's go to line number two. Say so good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly. He elected in Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air.
12: Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning?
1: Uh, not too bad. How about you?
12: Oh, I'm not doing too bad at all. Uh, Patty. I wanted to talk about cataract surgery, but before I do, I just want to say I... I uh, recently listened to uh, Mayor Sheila Lee uh, on, and uh, certainly a wonderful lady, very passionate about uh, her community for sure. Uh, and I've had a couple of people reach out to me about this issue, about the uh, fish plant Uh, in st mary's and um you know based on what i've been told uh, of course and i think you sort of reiterated uh, this gentleman has got all of his affairs in order he has uh the, the the product that can be uh that can be uh processed at that plant uh he's willing to invest in the plants and everything else and the only thing and and put people to work and the only thing that's holding him up Uh, apparently is the license to operate the plant and at least the source who contacted me told me that the licensing board um, has approved it but is just waiting on the minister to uh, give it his stamp of approval so if that is the case I would certainly encourage the minister to do so I mean this is a common property resource and uh, the people of that area like a lot of areas in the province they deserve an opportunity uh... to uh, for employment and economic development and this would certainly be a great boost for that area i understand every community can't have a fish plant uh... you know or wouldn't be sustainable in the big picture but if if it's true that the licensing board is given it the thumbs up then i'm sure they would have considered these things and they feel that there's an opportunity there that makes sense and if that's the case and it's just on the minister's desk then I will encourage the minister to certainly step up and approve it. And I will do so today when I see him in the House of Assembly as well. So I just wanted to put that out there.
1: It would be nice to understand the rationale for not approving it before. You know, it's one thing to say, you must do this, you should do that. But if there was some reason given as to why the hesitancy and or rejection, that gives us a better way to craft our argument as to why that might be the, the erroneous decision.
12: Absolutely, Patty. And, and as I said, you know, this is a this is a very lovely area. I'm I'm I have connections here as do you. And uh, I know that uh, that uh, you know there's you know that area, like a lot of pro- areas in the province, are struggling for economic development uh, opportunities. And this sounds like a good one to me. So I certainly look forward to hearing what the minister will have to say when I speak with him this afternoon. Okay. Um, anyway, so Patty, uh, as you know, my colleague uh, uh, Eddie Joyce has been raising the issue of cataract surgery on the west coast uh, for weeks now Um, I've heard him on your show and certainly uh, uh, he's been raising it, uh, he's been relentless in the House Assembly I have to say on behalf of the people of the west coast and the seniors who are waiting on cataract surgeries. I just wanted to point out that uh, it's not just happening on the west coast though and certainly uh, I just got off the phone uh, this morning with a constituent of mine, she was calling basically on behalf of her parents and uh, you know, you have um, one parent uh who has uh, significant health issues. Her dad does. Uh her mom is the, the primary caregiver, uh they're in their seventies and um she has severe cataracts, um uh and and requires uh, cataract surgery. Apparently, uh she had gone to um I think it was Dr. Jackman's office, although it wasn't Dr. Jackman. She saw it was one of the other optometrists here in St. John's uh, about getting the cataract surgery done. Um, And to make a long story short, uh, she's going to be waiting about a year and a half uh, to get that procedure done. Uh, But interestingly enough, they did say that, uh, but if you want to come in next week, which uh, she's going to be forced to do because of their situation, Uh, she can go in next week now and pay $3,200 per eye, and they can do it. Not a problem. But if you want to wait for MCP to cover it, you're going to be waiting a year and a half. So it's basically the same situation that we have on the West Coast. Uh, We have the ability to perform these uh, procedures. The capacity exists within these clinics. It just comes down to the fact that government is not prepared to fund. They're only prepared to fund so much uh, each year. Um, You know, I know uh, listening to Eddie, he's talked about on the West Coast for over 800 seniors. I think he said the price tag would be around a million, 1.3 million, uh, you know, which is significant money. But when you consider the fact uh, that you have, uh, you know, all these seniors uh, and how their life is impacted by uh, not being able to see people, not being able to uh, get their driver's licenses, in this case, this lady uh, will be, uh, you know, perhaps in a situation she wouldn't be able to care for her spouse and then we're into home care costs and everything else because uh, of her sight. So, um, you know, it's something that uh, I think makes sense uh, to do it. And it all comes down to priorities. And we do know that the feds have provided, you know, funding for health care and trying to clear up backlogs and everything else. And uh, I think it needs to definitely be paired part of the conversation. And it, it also makes it very tough for people, you know, when they're faced with these significant health challenges and not being able to get the care that they require. And then they hear about a lot of what, you know, many people would consider – frivolous government spins uh, in the backdrop and uh, that makes it even harder for people to take but uh, anyway I, I just want to point out it is happening on this end of the province as well and uh, it is a big issue uh, as is the whole our whole healthcare system uh, cataracts is uh, one issue a very important one for the day-to-day lives of seniors but we know that there are many other uh, issues within our healthcare system as well so
1: At some point, the the need for cataract surgery becomes irreversible, and that creates a bunch of different circumstances for individuals. I really don't quite get what's happening with capacity issues. Here's one specific reason why. A buddy of mine lives in town, has always lived in town. He just came back from the West Coast where he, on his own dime, made his way out there to get cataract surgery in one of those doctor's clinics. I think it was the doctor who was threatening to leave when all that MCP coverage argument was going on. Mm -hmm. So we had his surgery done out there came back all on his own dime he was just you know time was of the essence for this particular gentleman so when i'm told repeatedly that there's there was capacity in the collaborative care clinic but people are waiting forever to get in there's capacity in the realm of cataract surgery but the waiting list continues to grow like i really don't necessarily know what's going on to be honest
12: well, uh, I think what's happening, P- Patty, like you know, when we talk about the cataract uh, issue in particular, what's happening is it's, it's it's a quota issue. So basically, the capacity is there. So you know, so so if a cataract clinic says, you know, we can do just for argument's sake, we can do we have the capacity to do uh, 1,500 uh, people this year, but the government is saying, okay, but we're only going to provide you with enough funding to pay for 700 this year, and then the other 800 are have to wait till next year. That's what it comes down to. Okay. They could do them all this year if they want to. The capacity is there, but obviously they need to get paid by MCP and the government is saying, we're only budgeting X amount of money this year so you do however many you can out of that allocation and everyone else got to wait another year. And that's where when Eddie talks about those 800 seniors on the West Coast, he talks about $1.3 million. So with an additional investment of $1.3 million, that 800 that's going to have to wait till next year would get done this year and then we wouldn't have to spend that 1.3 million next year and then seeing all those seniors wouldn't be going around half blind for another year so that's what it comes down to and uh, so that comes down to the priority of how we spend our money and then again that's how people get very upset when they see what they consider frivolous spends, spends taking place throughout other parts of government when we have uh, people who are struggling with quality of life issues and as you say with cataracts uh, if it gets so severe, then uh, it becomes a permanent uh, thing. So we have to we, we have to find a way to do better.
1: Yeah, quota is an interesting thing. Like everything else, when we talk about how much is going to cost me today, what the implications are of, of you know filling half a quota this year, saving half another year, because that quota rolls over every yeah. time you service. A hundred people, as soon as they get it, a hundred people come right behind them needing the same treatment or very numbers, very close to. So if we have an increased health care cost because of the inability to get a cataract surgery done, what does that analysis look like? You know, are we anticipating fewer people to get cataracts? I can't imagine why. I mean, people understand the demographic issues that we're talking about in the province. So that's where we sort of reverse engineer things. Here's how much money we have for health care. And let's back, let's work from there versus here's what's happening on the ground. Here's what the implications are of, you know, whether it be not putting a cath lab in Cornerbrook, putting a CAT scanner in Cornerbrook, expanding MCP coverage for nurse practitioners or in Dr. Jackman's private clinic, and what if we don't do that? What does it look like? Because I I don't know if I've ever heard anyone have that conversation that was a five-year thought bubble about... Why we would do one thing or another, especially in healthcare, because obviously it's not money. If it was only money, then we'd have the best healthcare in the country because we spend a lot of money on healthcare, and we don't get the outcomes that we'd hope for. Uh, last word goes to you before I have to take a break for the news.
12: Yeah, no, thank you, Patty, for your time, and and, and again, you know, just to go back and use this particular example of this particular of this couple, uh, and you're absolutely right because uh, if this la- if this lady had to say, okay, um, you know, I'm going to have to wait a year and a half, and uh, her eyesight gets worse, whether it be, you know, uh, for the short term or even a, a permanent situation, then is she going to be able to continue to be the primary caregiver for her spouse, or are we now going to be into uh, home care costs and possibly, um, um, uh, you know, long-term care or, or personal care costs? So so you're right, you cannot look at one particular health issue, um, you know, and just singularly focus on it. You have to look at what are the implications, not, not necessarily what are the costs of doing it, what are the costs of not doing it?
1: Well, and if there's an argument to be made uh, opposed to my thoughts, and again, yep. I'm no, no expert in healthcare, but if we are looking at the social determinants of health, that leads me to believe we're looking at five, 10, 15, 20 year windows, Absolutely. based on who you are, where you are, the amount of money you got coming in the door, your level of education, and you're potentially engaged with the health system. So obviously we're taking the long view on that front. We should apply that maybe a little further down the age road as well. I'm off to the 100%. news, Paul. Appreciate the time.
12: Thank you, Patty. Always a pleasure. Take good Have care. A great
1: day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Paul Lane, the member, independent member of Mount Pearl Southlands. Let's take a break. When we come back, still plenty of time to speak
0: with you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The cabin party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Rod. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show.
13: Thanks so much, Patty. What I'm calling about is uh, an ad that I've seen uh, circulating in various job sites uh, offering uh, non-Newfoundland registered nurses an opportunity to go to work here in Newfoundland. Uh, You know, it's uh, a screenshot I saw for some $70 an hour and accommodations. You know, while my partner, who who you know, uh, works as a nurse, making around 40 bucks an hour, Um, you know, I'm looking at this and saying, is this really what we need to fix this problem? Uh, You know, we we keep, uh, as Paul Lane just said a few moments ago, we keep throwing money uh, at, at this, hoping it's going to fix itself or go away. And as you said, if money was the fix all, we wouldn't be in the issue we are in right now. Because we certainly spend you know, more money or, or as much money as, as anybody else in this country. So, like, you know, who's in charge here at the moment of our health care system? Well,
1: who's placing the ads? Uh,
13: it's, it's, a, um, it's an agency, an outside agency looking for nurses to come and work in Newfoundland. So I, I'm not familiar with the name, but you can go on LinkedIn or Indeed and see this ad. It, it, it pops up in my email. In fact, I'll do a screenshot after and send it to you, uh, email it to you. But, I mean, here it is now, uh, offering these nurses $70 an hour, plus accommodations to come to work here uh, in in, in Newfoundland right now uh, to fill the the nursing vacancies. I mean, you've got to be kidding me.
1: Well, like, it's it's hard to know. Like, if that's Eastern Health, it's one thing. If it's someone who operates a a private uh, personal care home, it's another thing. If it's who knows who advertising for nurses and whether or not the ad's even real. Like, I haven't seen it, so I don't really know what to say about it. But just if we back it to the beginning of the conversation, what's the problem with advertising for nurses?
13: Well, not the fact that they're advertising, but, but, but from what I understand, this, has been, this is an agency hired by Eastern Health to do this. This is what I've been told by several of my nursing friends and my partner's nursing friends, that this is a, an agency being hired to bring nurses to Newfoundland uh, you know the work here, but current registered nurses in Newfoundland are not allowed to apply. They're, they're, they're not. They're not allowed to to, to take these jobs. It, it states it very clearly in the ad.
1: Yeah, if you send me a screenshot, that would be helpful. So I have something to work from. Uh, So if you can do that for me, I would appreciate it. But then, again, I'd have to try to understand. Maybe I'll give a vet coffee over the Registered Nurses Union a a call to see what the issue is about not hiring local nurses. Maybe there's a redundancy there, because if there's someone already actively working on that in the province, then maybe we're just trying to add people to the roster, which might even be a double-edged sword with population growth like i don't know but if i give me something to work with and i'll do some chasing absolutely
13: and and my issue is if if we can if we can pay an agency to pay a a nurse coming from away to work here 70 bucks an hour uh, you know and and our own nurses are here making in 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 the low 40s the high the mid-30s to the low 40s that in itself stinks as far
1: as I can Yeah, but I'm, again, I'd have you know, to check out enough. the validity yeah, of that absolutely. because they'd be members of a union. And <laughs> rank and file, if there's one thing that they're all keen to keep an eye on is pay disparity because there's a scale and the scale is the scale is the scale for whoever, wherever you came from, whatever your uh, whatever province you were born in or country. So uh, again, I'm going to have to chase this one around a little bit to see uh, all right, now, well, the ins and outs of
13: it. screenshots and get the information to you. I know that... Uh, Uh, When I was was chatting with uh, my partner earlier, uh, she was telling me that, uh, uh, you know, she's seen it. She saw the offer that's being made and she was just, she said, I, I can't believe this, right? Just, you know, this is ridiculous. So she did send the information on to the uh, tour union as well. But what I'll do is I'll definitely do a screenshot and get it off to you immediately.
1: That'll be helpful, Rod. And of course, the, we know that there's been many nurses that have wanted to move from their designation as permanent uh, full-time to casual just so they can find some sort of work-life balance. I don't even know if that might be influencing some of the campaign to hire new out-of-province nurses, but you get me those screenshots, I'll put all those details in my head and I'll make a few calls.
13: Appreciate it. Take care,
1: buddy. Appreciate your time, Rod. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Mike, you're on the air.
14: Hey, Paddy. Good morning. Morning. Um, Paddy, I'd like to, to, to uh, pick up where Paul Lane, Mr. Lane, left off and his call. He's always an interesting call. Uh, no doubt about it. I wish we were more like him and Eddie Joyce as independents. They have a free voice to speak up. Let me apologize by saying that uh, I had some dental work uh, done a couple of hours ago. So if uh, you get the odd slurp or drool here, I apologize.
1: No, it sounds okay. Go right ahead.
14: <laughs> as that. Uh, as that thaws out. Patty, I went through this um, a year or two ago with the uh, cataract situation, identical to what Mr. Lane raised this morning. Um, My uh, optometrist said, well, there's the beginnings of a cataract there that really should be looked at. So I had a referral long wait, got in to see the ophthalmologist. That's hard to say with a thawing out the gum. Um, And uh, they said, oh yeah, we see it there. By the way, you're in your 70s now. You're going to be prone to those. We really should do both while we're in there, both eyes." I'd never heard of a second cataract before and uh you know we can we can set it up to do both and uh, we want you to meet the special person in our unit so i went in to speak to the special person in the unit they went to great lengths to upsell me and the upsell was four thousand dollars an eye To get it done Uh, I would pay for it it's up to me so if I had private insurance I could probably submit it and get part of that back because they they tend to build it private insurers pay more than government because uh, they're not as monitored as government does on their pricing anyway I declined that so I didn't have a a whole lot of time to wait several months or so whatever it was and uh, sure enough I had both eyes done and both paid by MCP both highly successful my point is this what we have here is, in that in that profession right now, is really what privatization is all about. The uh, the the provider service provider can bill high, and if you don't like it, you go on the government one is at the bottom of the list because you. And if you're desperate enough, you'll pay for it. A lot of seniors may have Echo D or lines of credit, things like that or others would have company-provided insurance group plans, which will also, it's like you go get your windshield fixed in your car, and the first thing they'll say to you is you're covered by insurance, because they'll bill it more. Same thing happens with the medical profession. If you're covered with insurance, they bill it more, and that's what's going on. That's what's taking place. You remember a couple of years ago we held this big racket on the Northern Peninsula about billing and everything else, and ophthalmology and everything else. If we have 800 out there in Mr. Joyce's Area in need. I don't know how many we would have province wide. Could the province not use some of its facilities and bring in one of these ophthalmologists from outside and do nothing but cataract surgeries for a period of time? That would knock that list down pretty quickly. But I don't think they will, Patty. I don't think they want to ruffle the feathers of the status quo. And I think that's what's going on. It's the same thing with dental. If I go to dental, if I got insurance, they charge more.
1: You no, know, there's a table in place. They and the strict adherence too.
14: Yeah, if, there has to be. If somebody is if somebody is monitoring it uh, under insurance, but if I go in uninsured and I got to pay for it out of my pocket, there's not a whole lot of monitoring goes on there. I'll tell you, it's it's what the market will bear. If you want it done, you pay for it.
1: Yeah, I think the disparity in those numbers might be pretty small. A couple of my friends are dentists, and I know full well the yep. billing codes. That's the be all and end all and yeah. they have got to be prepared to yeah. stand up for billing code they submit whether it be on your personal paid invoice and or an insurance uh, company applicant or submission so yeah I mean I, I'm I not have going enough to, to th- challenge
14: that I'm not going to challenge my dentist if I got to pay him and see him all the time I'll be darned if I'm going to be one filing and ask somebody to look at his coding uh, anyway let's get away from that let's go back okay. to the ophthalmology one sure uh, the ophthalmology one. I mean, Mr. Lane. First of all, thanks to him for bringing it up. We need more Mr. Lanes and Mr. Joyce. I've said that already. But this is the problem. It it's like government. It it's like I think they were the highest paid category in physicians last year. Remember, they published this list, and the highest amount of dollars of taxpayer dollars are paid to ophthalmologists. Is that correct? I believe it is. Yeah,
1: they're amongst amongst the highest billings, hundred percent. And
14: and they want more. Or you've got to wait a year or two. Now, that's not good enough. That's, that, is that gouging? I don't know.
1: Well, I mean, I think demand? if you asked one of those ophthalmologists, because this came out of nowhere, there was the potential to go to one private clinic or to wait and go to the health Sciences center to get it covered by MCP or if you chose to pay out of pocket. Then it became all sorts of comments about contravening the Canada Health Act. Then there was some sort of compromise, which I think was based on court cases, to be honest where now i can indeed to ease the burden on the clinical setting that is the health sciences center i can go to a private clinic and have mcp build. the concern was whether or not they were telling you the whole truth and nothing but the truth with what things cost and options available you know and trying to upsell different lenses and what have you now with the uh the billings being done through mcp i think it's leveled it out and in fact i think it's probably chipped away at the waitlist quicker than it would have been with the old setup that was in place which really made no sense did it i'm,
14: I'm not of this. When I researched it, they're not facts I came up with. But if what do I you mean by that? In, well, I didn't find it chipped away with anything. I found that it actually got worse when we went to the status quo we went into now. Well, how
1: could that possibly have been, though? Like that
14: there, was a lar- there, were lar- there were larger amounts. Once again, there were no fixed island-wide numbers. I mean, this 800 came out of you know, the area where Mr. is, as far as I understand. I don't think it's island-wide or province-wide, but uh, when I looked at it uh, a year or two Ago, Um, the the, uh, and and this was a year or so after this big kerfuffle in the northern peninsula or wherever it was out west. The wait period or the wait times had actually the number of people waiting had actually increased and they gotten longer. I could be wrong, and Patty, maybe I looked at the wrong set of data. Anyway, my point is this: you mentioned uh, a minute ago that. Why could I not go to the Health Sciences Center and get, I mean, I didn't go to the Health Sciences Center to get my cataract on. I went into a room in the ophthalmologist's office, and they did me right on the spot. It, 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 I appreciate their service. It was excellent service. I'm not criticizing the ophthal- ophthalmologist. I, I'm really pleased with the service I got. But I'm, 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 I'm prob- I got problems with the system. If we got this in there, why could I not go in and get it done? Why could I not go to the Health Sciences Center? And uh, believe me, if I had lots of money, it's like somebody getting a heart surgery down in in Florida versus waiting here locally, if I had lots of money and somebody said, here's $4,000 an eye, this super-duper... Uh, you know, cataract surgery type of thing, and by the way, you will need some slate reading glasses after, they said to me, you know, if it didn't mean anything to me, 4000 bucks, an I, I'd probably in all likelihood, yeah, okay, let's get this done next week.
1: Sure. But M- I don't. Wait wait That's times... should have to wait a year and a half. Okay. Wait times to me, when I look at the numbers, and I try to keep up on it because people are never really going to call me about it, it's not just how long you waited, but how many people are on the list this year versus last yep. year versus five years yep. ago, because if if you had a 1,000 people waiting six months 10 years ago, but you have 5,000 people now waiting nine months, wait times are actually down if you extrapolate a 1,000 to 5. So that's the tricky piece about...
14: Numbers, I can't figure that out. It's way above me.
1: No, not really. Uh, I mean, just let's think about it on this front. So people say now, like the province of Quebec, they just surpassed their COVID deaths in 2022 already than they had in 2021. Is it because the... Uh, vaccines or the virus, uh, it's math. There's more people infected. Consequently, more people will die. Same thing here. If more people are waiting for one surgery, one procedure or another, the likelihood without increasing the numbers of doctors or clinical staff or diagnosticians, then inevitably wait times will work commensurate with numbers of people waiting. That's all I mean by
14: it. Well, you're you're making some good points. So, Patty, let's go back to why we're in the swamp for a minute. This elderly person and and others, I I assume, you know, at had some cataracts and was losing her sight yep. and and she can't get done unless she was willing to pay thirty two hundred dollars an eye sixty four hundred dollars now not a whole lot of people out there got that kind of money with seniors but if she paid that money she could have it done in a week or two but because she couldn't pay that money and because medicare is paying for it, medicare recognizes that it's a serious problem but nope, I'm sorry you've got to go a year, year and a half to get in the line to wait up because you haven't got enough money. So that's the problem, And and if that's the problem – and it's here for those people. I believe it's a lot more across the province. Then so let's target the province. Let's, let's, you know, you could probably hire some autologists to come in for a week or two, give them an operating room saying, here, here's a, here's 2,000 people that got to have cataracts removed. Here's your inventory. Go ahead and do them. Give us a bill and go back to where you're from. But government won't do that. It makes too much sense in the private sector is what they do. If they got a lineup, they'd bring in more more doctors and get it done quick if they could get that kind of money for it. But why won't government do that? What is so sacrosanct that we've got to protect the market for the existing limited supply of service providers? I, I,
1: I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Uh,
14: but Okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I, 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 perhaps I'm being a little bit too adversarial on it. But uh, when, when that came up, when Mr. Lane, Mr. Paul Lane right, uh, raised that this morning, and Mr. Joyce, having gone through it, and believe me, there was a real sales job done on myself. My wife was with me. You know, that. You know. I mean, I could afford it, but it was like, you know, wow, get this done. Here's this. And the glossy brochures came out and everything else to try and sell me on it and but because i'm perhaps more focused than some people might be or a little bit too contrary i don't know i asked questions that couldn't be answered and i said no that's okay Uh, you know i got a small cataract my optometrist and i got a great respect for her i trust her and so when I finally did get into oh, well, you know, we got this small one there, but you're in your 70s, you're probably going to have another one soon. We're going to do the other eye, too. And I wasn't going to say to him when I was going to go under a process, well, what are you talking about now? The Thomas said, I got a small one on one eye. Where you coming up with a second one? I was going to say that. MCP was covering it, uh, but if I had to pay it out of my pocket, I would have said, where are you getting the second one? But I had all these tests done a couple of months ago. Anyway. It is, it is a mug's game, Patty, and I don't want to cast this on the ophthalmologist. Op- 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 다니- I'm, I'm sure they got lots of personal integrity, and they don't need my mouth going with drooling or not. But uh, I, I think the situation is grossly, manifestly unfair. And uh, thanks again for Mr. Joyce and Mr. Lane for raising it on behalf of the people out there.
1: I appreciate your time this morning, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Patty. Have You're a great welcome. day. You Bye too. Now. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. A couple of callers ago was Rod talking about advertisements to bring in nurses from out of province, the inability from nurses that are in the province to apply for the jobs. Now, someone else sent along a collection of these screenshots, and it's a a real dog's breakfast of all kinds of different opportunities with different rates of pay, working in different facilities and mobile care units and up and down the line. So it really does leave me a lot of chasing to do, which I'm happy to do because we all need and want to know about what's going out there with the active uh, recruitment and retention of any healthcare professional, which is again while I will uh, I'll say that Dr. Megan Hayes, the new assistant assistant deputy minister of health professional recruitment and retention, has her hands full. I wonder. I mean, in years past, trying to get some time with a senior bureaucrat was virtually impossible. I remember John Abbott, who was then a, a and the Deputy Minister of Health got himself in trouble for doing an immediate media interview. But it would be great to talk to the good doctor just to simply have a better idea of what she and how she's approaching this issue. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.